If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. What was it like to be a 12-year-old girl in 1930s Bolton? That's something that Hester Barron and Claire Langhammer aim to reconstruct in their new book, Class of 37, using an archive of schoolgirls' essays on everything from their favourite film stars to their ideas about heaven and hell. I spoke to them both to find out more. The Class of 37, it takes us back to the Lancashire mill town of Bolton in 1937, as seen through the eyes of a class of 12 and 13-year-old schoolgirls. You managed to create a, a really vivid and moving portrait of these girls' lives. So can you tell us about the extraordinary archive that you drew on in order to do so? Well, the essays um, are located in the Mass Observation Archive, uh, which is an archive um, that sits at an archive called The Keep um, in East Sussex, just near where we work at Sussex University. Um, And the essays themselves were collected by a group of mass observers who were working in Bolton um, in the northwest of England um, from 1937 through to 1940. Um, And they were up in Bolton, basically just finding out everything they possibly could find out about the town. And the essays were collected because some of the people who were particularly interested in what mass observation was doing were school teachers um, who were willing to get their children to write essays that might be of interest to the mass observers and then to pass them on um, to the researchers. So the Mass Observation Archive is humongous. It's vast and covers many years and a lot of Britain. But why was it this particular collection of of children's essays that caught your attention? I mean, we're both interested in the history of ordinary people, the history of children, the history of the working classes. And we'd used the Mass Observation Archive many times before. We use it in teaching a lot. We use it in our other academic work. and. Um, It it was on a bit of a whim, actually, that we came across um, this entry in the catalogue about children's essays that had been collected that we hadn't seen being used in any of the other mass observation material that that we were aware of. Um, And at that point as well, the archive hadn't been digitised. But but in those olden days, we had to take the 10 minute walk uh, down to the actual archive (laughs) to to look at the documents. We took your iPad, Claire, didn't we? And actually... There were so many, we thought, oh, we'll just take a few photographs of some of them as a record. And we ran out of Claire's battery. We had to come back another day because her iPad ran out because there were so many. And there were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of these children's essays. 
Um, and it just really caught our imagination because it's something that it's so hard to find children's voices in archives. So a lot of the work that historians do, historians of childhood do, it, it dependent on adult voices. So either adults like teachers or um, you know police records or orphanage records, those kind of formal institutional records, um, or autobiography and oral history records, which are also adult voices. Um, they are the adult voices of the children that they once were. Mm. I mean, it's so rare to find children's voices written when children were children. Mm. And what kind of areas does it shed light on? It really tells us um, so much just about ordinary life, um, about what it was like to be not just a child, but a person in Bolton in the late 1930s. Um, so we get accounts from them about the royal family. So that gives you a window into attitudes towards royalty. Um, we get stories about home, about home life. So you get a window into domestic tasks, um, what the girls were doing, but also what their mothers were doing. Um, you also, they write about their holidays and what they do on particular days off school. So you get a window into leisure lives. Um, and we were able to use the essays alongside some of the other material that mass observation collected in Bolton. They did a lot of observational work. They they were just, they recorded everything. Um, so they they rocked up at the opening of the Odeon Cinema, for example, and wrote a long account of that. Um, they went to a summer carnival and meticulously wrote down, described I think there's 162 different um, parts of the procession that they write all down. So you get, so we're able to use the two together to kind of really sort of paint a picture of everyday life more broadly in this period. And one of the things that I found most fascinating about the book was the was the tone almost of those mass observation comments. So the mass observers weren't just going in objectively looking at things, were they? Their accounts were quite subjective sometimes. And of their accounts of these children could be quite brutal, couldn't they? I mean, they were. I think that's uh, that's that's fair to say that. The mass observers themselves, um, not always, but sometimes came from quite different backgrounds to the people that they were actually observing. And uh, they they could be quite brutal and quite brusque in their descriptions. Um, and one of the things that really um, drove us to write this book was um, when we saw the descriptions that some of the one of the mass observers has had actually made of the children whose essays we had read and put those descriptions against the essays that these girls were writing because there was such a, a vast chasm between the mass observers' account of the girl and these incredibly rich and thoughtful and clever essays uh, that the children were writing. On that note, you must have kind of drawn up a, a picture of each of these girls because you had so much detail on each one. Can you give us a sense of some of the characters that you know you, you drew out of here and ones that particularly appeal to you? It was interesting at the beginning because we had, so there were 41 girls in the class and they're all aged 12 and 13. And, and I mean, I suppose one of the reasons why we got into, why we were so taken by the material in the first place is that because all the essays were named, um, which is very, very rare for mass observation to put names on anything. And actually some essays from elsewhere, school essays from elsewhere, they've had their names crossed out. 
Um, but these names were all on. And of course, as we were reading, we sort of started seeing the same names coming up and eventually we would be able to put the class together. Um, so even from the very beginning, we got a sense of each child and certain children stuck out because of certain phrases that they had or because of their handwriting in some cases. Um, and so we we quickly we became very fond of them very quickly. And I think the next stage mm. was that we then found the comments of the Mass Observer, again, with names attached, which, again, is just really unusual. And that then gave us another kind of insight, another dimension to the girls. Um, so the ones who were, you know, he, he rather sniffly points at uh, or comments that some of them are a bit too interested in boys and they, maybe they should be, or he's very derogatory about some of them in terms of their physical appearances um he talks about there's one of them who go, he, he mentions that they, she goes to the cinema five times a week um and I mean they're all big cinema fans but this one was particularly so so we were kind of building up their personalities and then as we kind of investigated the next layer was the work we did um on ancestry and things like that in terms of building up the picture of their family and seeing what they went on to do and of course finally it was uh we tracked down some of the descendants and we were able to get families memories of their mothers in that case so most of these girls came from working class backgrounds so can you give us a sense of what it was like to grow up in a working class household in Bolton in 1937 I mean there's a lot of diversity I mean one of the things that was quite striking about the girls was the range of different experiences so at one point in, um, in, in the school year, they're asked to give accounts of how much pocket money they get. Um, and the, the sums of pocket money that the girls get differ. You know, there's girls who are getting virtually nothing. So girls who are getting a lot. Um, you know, there are some girls who are having um, piano lessons. Um, there are some girls who clearly have a very, um, very clear sense of how little that money their family have. Um, so you get that sense of the, the the diversity of working class experience in this period, um, but a shared sense of um, of culture, really, you know, of that desire to go to uh, a seaside holiday town um, for the summer break, um, an understanding of the mill um, as the dominant um, employer in the town, um, and a sense of how hard their mothers work, for example. Um, some of the most moving accounts are where the girls talk about helping their mothers out in the home. Sorry, I just wanted to check Hester wasn't just going to jump in there. But um, I think also some of the other most touching moments are where the girls talk about their own dreams and their aspirations for the future. What did what did they look forward to in life? Well, so one of the essays that they're asked to write on is entitled What I Want to be when I grow up and of course that's that's some of the most beautiful material and again arranging a, reflecting their personalities as well so you get some of them who say that they want to um, be a film star that they want to one of the one girl says that she wants to be a millionaire and have a handsome young man for her husband um, as, her, as her dream for the future um, but you also get ones who are who want to be teachers or who want to uh, work in a shop um, or who want to um, uh, be a nurse. 
those kind of uh, those kind of occupations what they what they're almost universally don't want to do is go to work in the mill it's dirty and it's smelly and it's noisy I mean I think one of the reasons why those essays are so touching as well of course is because this is 1937 when they're writing and we know and they don't when they're writing about the future about what is going to happen two years later Um, and of course in reality a lot of them are destined for the cotton mill but a lot of them are in fact actually destined for the munitions factories um, and a lot of them go into work in munitions and, and, and war jobs. That is one of the most interesting um, factors about this research, as you say, that vector of the Second World War looming over it, and the way that big global events of the time touch on these girls' lives. So I'm thinking of, for example, the, the Spanish Civil War and, and the coronation of George um, VI. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how that um, came through in the essays. It's one of the lovely things about um, all sort of so-called ordinary people's writing is that you get the everyday detail, but every so often you get just these touches out into the sort of national and global context. Um, so with the Spanish Civil War, for example, um, you know, Bolton is one of the places where Basque children are sent. Um and so mass, ob- mass observers go and visit some Basque children. So we're able to draw on that um, and to draw some comparisons between the experience of our girls and the experience of those displaced children and very traumatised children in this period. Um, but the coronation, I mean, Hester can talk talk more to the coronation, but um, the, the girls are they're, they're, they're pretty enthusiastic about the royal family, uh, particularly um, the royal princesses, um, who they really do seem to almost universally love. Um, but Hester, do you want to say a little bit about the Coronation Day in the mill? Coronation Day is obviously a big event um, and coming only a couple of years after the um, George V's Jubilee as well. Um, so both those two events are quite big they're big days for our our girls um but the mills i mean coronation fever in bolton was was everywhere and they had um you know obviously street displays flags everywhere the bunting was up they actually had a street competition for the best decorated street um and, and the street of one of our girls was um was was one of the runners up um for the prizes um but also in the mills as well, they had competitions uh, between different rooms in the mill, for example, of who, you know, which group of which group of women could decorate their looms uh, in the in the best way and things like that. Royalty was very much a part of um, it was very much at the forefront of their thoughts. I think, particularly when they're writing these essays, because they're writing the, some of the essays they're writing around the time of the coronation. So there's a lot of joy in these accounts, isn't there? So you mentioned earlier kind of spare time, love of the cinema and holidays. And I wonder if you could just tell us a bit more about um, some of those factors. I mean, this we've mentioned already, but the cinema, the girls, most of the girls love the cinema. Um, they they have their favourite um, actors and actresses. Um, they, you know, they, <laughs> they, the cinema, it's hard to overestimate how important the cinema was um, in 1930s Britain. I mean, it is ubiquitous. Everybody wants to go to the cinema, or nearly everyone. Um, So the opening of the Odeon Cinema 
um, in Bolton is a big event. I mean, it's it's newsworthy. There's a, it's not just, you know, it opens and people go. Um, there's a grand opening with lots of speeches. There's um, various musicians present. Um, there's a little bit of grumbling as well, but on the whole, it goes really well. Um, so that kind of leisure life that the children would have been really involved with. Same with things like um, carnivals, you know, um, the summer carnival has a carnival queen um, who's just a couple of years older than our girls would have been. Um, you know, so children are part of that um, as well. And then, of course, there's the holiday season. Um, and, you know, when Bolton people go on holiday, they tend to go to Blackpool, um, as I'm sure Hester will, will like to explain further. Um. I can do, but I also wanted to pick up on that point about, you know, and you say there's lots of joy in the essays. And I think that's quite an important point in terms of speaking to the kind of diversity of experience that Claire was talking about earlier, that, you know, we think of the Northwest in the, in the 1930s and you think of grim, you think of unemployment, you think of smoky factories, you think of poverty, you think of the dull, and all of that is is there. And that's, you know, the repercussions of that the girls are living with it's it's a hard life but they're also 12 and 13 and they want to go out with their friends and they've got the cinema and they've got you know they want to go shopping and they want to go to Blackpool and so, and it's this put the putting together of the two of the two things um mm. and they have this you know this joy to their lives as well there's that lovely mm. stuff, isn't there, where they, a um, few of them, because they write an essay um, around April Fool's Day, and, and a few of them kind of re recount April Fools that they've played on other people or that they've had played on them. And that it really is that moment where you get that sort of gorgeous kind of childish joy, but, I'm, but in a lovely, lovely way. What kind of April Fools were going down in 1937? <laughs> Things like sort of touching somebody on the back and then going April Fool. I mean, they... <laughs> well, you know, it's, yeah, it's, it's not it's not the most imaginative ones, really. It's you know, there's someone at the door. Yeah. Oh no, there's not. Or you know, <laughs> you've got something on your leg. Oh no, you haven't. <laughs> um, yeah, I, Hester, I wonder because you have some really joyful material on the on the bright lights, as it were, of Blackpool at this time, what can you tell us about what this meant to people to go away for a week to the seaside? There was a, a week at the end of June where the factories closed, uh, the mills closed down for, for maintenance, and that was the traditional going away week, wakes week. Um, and Blackpool was the uh, aspiration and uh, um, mass observation reckoned that about 95% of Bolton's population had been to Blackpool at some point. It's, I mean, it's, um, you know, not far down the road on the coast. But it would depend on circumstances. There's also no paid holidays in 1937. That's gonna, not going to come until the following year. So if you, you, you not only have to pay to go to Blackpool for your board and lodging and travel, but you also are, are existing without wages for that week as well. Um, so for some people, holiday week is staying at home and trying to kind of survive on on no wages. And there are some girls who, some of our girls go to Blackpool, but there are also a lot of them talk about um, the holidays and and walking around the streets and going to the park and, and it's just there, they, they don't get a holiday in that sense. 
still to come on the History Extra podcast. And you just say something about that where you think, well, any 12-year-old at any point might write that. Um, And there's something about, again, the immediacy immediacy and the freshness of that. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash History Extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. What can the um, essays tell us about about the dynamics of the family in this era. So, you know, gender roles within the family and the and the relationships between parents and children, for example. I mean, some of the most touching bits are where they're talking about their parents. Um, you know, we've already mentioned that a lot of them are, a lot of the girls are doing, are, are, are having a kind of apprenticeship in domestic tasks. Um, I mean, there are some essays from children who are uh, a little bit younger than these girls from the same elementary school. Um, and, and even at the age of, say, 10, they're doing you know, quite a lot of work in the home. So they certainly are being schooled in how to be a woman uh, in that period and what that um, involves. Um, but and, and a lot of their day to day is around their mother and working with the mother, but also going on out shopping with her mother. There's a lovely account from one of the girls who um, has a her, her mum's quite heavily pregnant, and it really reads like they're having a kind of mother and daughter trip before the baby comes along. And they go into town, they go to a milk bar as a special treat, um, and then they go to the shops, and including Woolworths, of course. She gets bought um, some shoes, I think, and a coat. So there's that story, but there's also uh, other family characters um, who feature in the essays. So some of the girls do things with their dads as well. So you get this really interesting story of what, you know, particular models of fatherhood. Um, you know, making things, doing, looking after animals with their dads, for example, uh, learning cork work with their with their dads, um, and siblings as well. I mean, some of the sibling relationships are are really lovely. Um, it's clear that some of the 
those who have older sisters are being kind of schooled in how to be a a young woman in a different way um, by their older sisters, you know, whether it's in terms of makeup or perfume or uh, any any of that stuff. Um, so, so, yes, there are ways in which they're being schooled in terms of gender roles. It's also more interesting than them simply being schooled as how to be a housewife, I think. Mm. And there's quite a sense, isn't there, of the importance of extended families in this community. So not just the mother, father and siblings. Aunties come up all over the place. There's there's very few essays which don't man- mention aunties at some point. Um, a lot of the girls are born and bred in Bolton. A lot of their parents are born and bred in Bolton. And, and they have this family network, which is really important. Um, and cousins, cousins a little bit as well. Um, so, yes, mm. that extended family and particularly the female side of it comes across very strongly as, as being very important. Hester, something that you said earlier struck me, which was that this idea that by kind of revealing moments of joy, these diaries, they challenge, you know, preconceptions or stereotypes that we might have about, say, working class communities at this time. Were there any other kind of surprising insights that they gave you, you know, that might go against what people's assumptions about 1930s Britain are? I think not not necessarily about 1930s Britain, but maybe this is true of a wider period as well. But I think this the sense of these girls and, and the what they want to be plays into this, but the sense of these girls as girls with ambition. So these are girls who, they're working class, they're, they're northern, they're, they're girls, they're children. For, for so many reasons, they're kind of at the bottom of the pecking order. Um, and... They also, these particular girls, because there's a different um, system of schooling at that point. So aged 11, some children would be siphoned off from the elementary school to go to secondary schools if they could pay or if they passed scholarships. But if you didn't have the money or if you didn't get a scholarship, you stayed on at the elementary school until the leaving age of 14. Um, and these girls were, were, were among that group. So even educationally, they're, they're getting the very kind of basic education which hinders some of them in their ambition to become teachers for example um and I think what was lovely and surprising again thinking about you know you think about 1930s you think about working class girls but seeing the 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 ambition and the hopes and the dreams was 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 just really was really lovely and it was and it's so again to be able to kind of give voice to it and 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 write about them and give them give them a voice through the book um, was really special. Mm. I think, and then, and then to, into, you know, to talk with their families and to be able to find out what happened next. And even if they didn't manage to achieve the specific ambition that they wrote about as children, you know, there were sort of other ways in which, say, an interest in needle crafts was put into action. One of the girls did. She wanted to be a nurse. She became a nurse. So that was just really lovely to find out. Um, but there are all sorts of other ways in which the child that they were framed the adult they became. And it was really nice to see those connections. Well, I wanted to ask you a bit more about what lives these, well, then women went on to. So how did you construct their lives and what did you find? To start with, it was very our information was very limited, and we'd been working with these girls for quite a while actually before we got around to contacting the families. We felt we knew a lot about them up to 1937, 
Um, and then there was this big question mark. So then when we were able to trace some of the relatives and speak to them, it was it was kind of magical finding out what what happened to them and actually seeing photographs as well. That was that was quite amazing, being able to put the faces to the names. Most of them went on into the mill when they started when they left school. So they're leaving school kind of 38, early 39. All of, they've all left school by, the, by September. Um, and then obviously the war intervenes. Some of them go into munitions. Um, some of them stay on at the mill uh, because the mills will repurpose to do things like um, uh, khaki uniforms, things like that. Um, and then after the war, many of them get married, have children. Um, and many of them continue to live quite difficult lives in terms of financial work a lot of them continue working after marriage a lot of them have children and then go back to work when children are say start school um and there's this constant for a lot of them and there's this for the rest of their lives it's this hard struggle to kind of make ends meet um but I think what we thought when we talked to relatives what came through across pretty much everyone we spoke to was this sense of of, of the mum or the aunt being a very, you know, the kind of strong woman who was determined to make those ends meet and who held her family together, you know, who loved her children, who was a really kind of strong presence. So you mentioned there, of course, that you, you spoke to relatives and got more information from relatives, but also you, you gave back to the relatives and that you took these essays to them and showed them the essays that were their their mothers or their aunts what kind of reactions did you get to that it it was it was really lovely um to be in a position to do that um so as soon as we um we, we were helped by um actually by a, a genealogist um Anne Stevenson who helped us get in touch with families and also um the mass observation archive helped us as well um, by writing on our behalf to the families um, and once we got in touch the virtually the first thing we did was said do you want us to send you um, copies of of the essays that your relative wrote and um, we sent them off and um, pretty much everybody got back almost immediately to say um, just how lovely it was to be able to see um, see their mother or their aunt you know as a child um, and sometimes they 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 said that they thought they could recognise little character traits or even just the nature of the handwriting. Um, but, yeah, so, th- so that was a, a, really, a really lovely thing uh, to be able to do. So this is, this is a very small study about one particular time and one particular place. But what do you think that the power of historical micro-studies is? The beauty of that kind of really um, textured, deep study is that many of the processes of history are evident within the small scale. I mean, small histories can say huge things about big questions uh, because you get that depth and you get that texture, just as, you know, one individual life um, can just have so much detail attached to it. That's why some of the mass observation wartime diaries are so illuminating for um, the experience of home front Britain. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think that I, I'm a big fan of the kind of micro study um, as a way of um, as a way of getting at bigger questions, but but also of of respecting and of 
and and validating the detail of everyday life. And I think in terms of those big questions as well, this is such an important or such an important generation. So these are girls who they were born in 24, 25. They were born when when they were born, their mothers didn't have the vote. Um, they grew up in the in, through the depression. They kind of entered young adulthood during the Second World War. The oldest of them voted, would have been old enough to vote in 1945 for you know that landslide election for, for Labour. They had children, they they entered family life under the auspices of the, of the new welfare state. Um, and so they, for us as 20th century historians, they kind of, these you get through these ordinary lives and these ordinary words, you get that stretch of 20th century history. And finally, you might need a bit of time to decide on your answers for this. But finally, I just wonder if you could both nominate one of your favourite entries that really spoke to you. Um, I mean, I, I would say I would go with Madge, actually, who we use in the introduction, um, just because um, of the juxtaposition between uh, the mass observer's view of her and her own words. So, you know, she writes, for example, about hell she writes of the devil. People say he burns you in a fire, but I don't say that it's true. He, the man who has no, no power, is trying all he can to take gods. And that real sense of, of how power works, you know, it's really lovely. Or when she writes about um, an imagined future as a farm worker, she, she sort of really pulled us in because she asks us to just think how nice the fresh cream would be. Anyone who reads this, I hope it does not make your mouth water as it has made mine. So those points where the girls, it almost feels like the girls are writing and, and engaging with us as an audience. Those, I think, are are really, really lovely. On Madge as well, yeah, as you said, Claire, the, the, particularly for Madge, she was one of the first girls that we were struck with because... She has all these wonderful turns of phrase and she comes across as such a kind of... She talks about elsewhere about how she, the thing that she most values in other people is love and kindness. And yet the mass observer's description description of her is, is pretty brutal in terms of her physical appearance and that, um, you know, that she's not very bright. And it, yeah, and, and, and that mismatches. She was one of the first girls that drew us in, wasn't she? She really um, was. But I... I I'm torn. I think we've. I think my favourite girl at any point was always the girl that we were writing about, and whoever whoever we were kind of involved with for that chapter was my, was always my favourite. A different example of the kind of writing that they're doing. I would go for Nellie, who actually this is also in an essay about uh, heaven and hell, and she's describing hell and also describing the devil, and she talks about how she writes this long thing about how the devil. Um, it, if you go to hell, the devil takes everybody and he stands in next to a stream, he cuts their heads off and then they walk around with no heads on. Um, and you just say, it's something about that where you think, well, any 12-year-old at any point might write that. Um, and there's something about, again, the immediacy and the, immediacy and the freshness of that. Um, and we think of we think of people in the past sometimes are so kind of distanced, um, but actually... Yeah, you think, well, sometimes sometimes they're not as well. Sometimes you can imagine, you know, a 12-year-old in a classroom somewhere now writing something like that. Hester and Claire's book, Class of 37, Voices from Working Class Girlhood, is available now, published by Metro.
You can find a link in the show notes. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Benuit, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. Join us tomorrow when Andrew Lowney will be discussing the lives of Edward VIII and Wallace Simpson after the abdication. <laughs>